That smooth Christian jazz you're hearing means you've tuned in to Same Old Song, the lectionary podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm your co-host, Aaron Zimmerman. I'll be joined by Jacob Smith as each week we break down the lectionary readings for the upcoming Sunday to give you something to think about, and if you're a preacher, to give you something to preach about, and no matter who you are, to give you a connection to the never-changing message of God's grace for actual people like you. Unzip that monogrammed faux leather Bible carrying case and cover, pull up a chair, and let's dig in. Well, welcome back, everybody, to another great episode of Same Old Song, uh, the preaching podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. My name is Jacob Smith, and I'm here joined with my friend and co-host, uh, Aaron Zimmerman of Waco, Texas, um, who is also available for parties and wedding receptions. Don't forget bar mitzvahs. That too. So anyway, uh, well, welcome back, Aaron. How are you? Uh, doing great. Thank you. It's good to see you, too, back from the Canary Islands. Glad to see they dropped the charges and the, uh, <laughs> they didn't have to go to the International Criminal Court at The Hague. Well, Everything done. is all clear. All clear. Woo! So, um, That's good. amazing what a good lawyer can do. Yeah, no, yeah. things are good in Waco. Uh, thank you very much. You know, a lot of clean living and hanging out with uh, Chip and Joanna Gaines, uh, my very, very close personal friends and, um, and national uh, home renovation stars. I'm not bragging. It's just true. That's I'll good. I'll put in a good word for you, Jake. Please, we need to renovate the rectory here, and so that would be I great. I know, so. and nothing but shiplap will do. We'll right, take yeah. out a wall and make a, put in a counter and make all sorts of space. So, um, Just get that just, open floor plan yeah, that they didn't right. know about until recently. <laughs> Well, uh, we are um, making our way to the Epiphany, uh, to the end of Epiphany. We are now in the seventh Sunday after Epiphany. I'm a little starting to get sick of Epiphany, but um, uh, nonetheless, we are talking about the revelation of who God is, who you are, and uh, where the two of them meet. And uh, our first reading is from Genesis 45, verses 3 through 11 and 15, um, conveniently just chalking on 15 there. Um, but um, the point is, is that this drops you right at the end of the story of Joseph uh, coming into contact with his uh, brothers who uh, have just basically ruined his life. And Joseph is saying it's no big deal. But it's kind of, if you just <laughs> read this, um, nobody would uh, understand what the heck you're talking about. You're coming to the end of a family story. Aaron, do you want to give us a little bit of the backstory? Yeah, so it begins with uh, a young Donny Osmond uh, in the in the desert uh, with his brothers. Uh, it's a big Mormon family. No, this is a reference <laughs> to Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat, which originally Although starred I bet you Donny they Osmond. Did drive an who SUV. Is a Mormon. So. <laughs> I'm sure they did. Maybe one of those big Mercedes vans. It's like mm -hmm. bigger than a minivan. When I was a kid, uh, I grew up with, near a lot of Mormons, and we used to call SUVs Mormon assault vehicles. And so <laughs> <laughs> no, no offense. Man, last episode we offended the ACNA. Now we're going after the Latter-day Saints. Will we not offend anyone, Jake? Well, every Mormon that's listening, please keep listening, because you will get converted to the true Lord. And so anyway, um, that's good. But let's go back. Oh, so we have... Yeah, uh, Jacob Smith. I feel like, so my role here is to make you break and uh, get you telling us all the stuff you know about Mormons, Freemasons, and other secret societies. Uh, but your job is the segue. You're so good at it. I just want to affirm
affirm you, Jake, and uh, use you. my spiritual gift of encouragement. You keep us Thank moving. So let, yeah, so jumping in to, to Genesis 45. So this is the story that people might know from Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat. This is the end of the story, at least. So uh, Joseph and his brothers uh, had a bit of a spat. Uh, Joseph was the youngest, the favorite, the one that his dad loved. And so uh, the brothers were jealous. Joseph had some vision that all the brothers would bow down to him. Uh, and they, he told them this and they didn't like it. So they were just going to leave him in a pit to die. But instead they said, hey, let's, uh, I mean, then what do we have? It's just a dead brother. Let's instead get, get something for us. Let's sell him to some traders who took him to Egypt. And uh, while he was there, it was one bad thing. Oh. They were, yeah. Distant and, um, cousins. And is that something we should preach about a lot? No, not at all. It's just interesting. So Yeah. If you want to lose your congregation span of attention a short digression on the ishmaelites everybody uh and then moby dick so in this though we're getting the end of the story so joseph goes to egypt and all the bad things happen to him it's national lampoon's egyptian vacation all the bad stuff happens that can happen uh first joseph well first he's sold into slavery in egypt which is bad enough he goes to work for a guy uh, whose wife tries to seduce him. He runs away and is innocent, but nevertheless she accuses him, so he gets arrested, he's put in jail, he makes a friend in jail, who then turns his back on him and betrays him. But ultimately, he rises to prominence because of God's providence, and he is the chief of staff. He's sort of the second in command under the Pharaoh. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so then, uh, what? meanwhile, back in... Israel land. What was going on, Jake? Well, uh, a terrible, terrible famine had hit. It struck the whole, not only Israel, it struck um, Egypt as well. However, because of Joseph and his dreams and God's uh, providence, um, Egypt actually had plenty of food. And so what happened was, is that uh, Joseph's brothers, this is much longer, and I'm sure Joseph, you know, has a physical trainer. He looks great. Uh, He is, Mm. you know, dressed in the finest of clothes. And uh, so they don't recognize him at all, but they go in looking for food. But Joseph recognizes them. And um, this is the perfect place where, um, you know, um, uh, human instinct would uh, say, drop the hammer. You know, this is your opportunity for real revenge. Uh, Rope them all up and kill them. And... um, and that's that would be my instinct. I think about that. I would be so angry at these guys. Um, but this isn't the case for Joseph. Joseph recognizes that God is not actually at work all the time. Well, God is at work everywhere. But specifically, you know, when we think of God, we want to highlight the high points. Oh, you know, the Lord was here doing this when things were great. Oh, the Lord was here when we were doing great, blah, 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 blah. Um, but actually what Joseph points out is that God was actually work in the crap. Um, God was at work in the misery. God was also at work in the deep sadness and in the betrayal, doing something mm-hmm. amazing. And uh, and this was to save people's lives. Um, and right. uh, and this all this you can draw this thread out all the way to the cross. You know uh, yeah. where um, uh, another Joseph came along and was rejected by his brothers as well. Um, and uh, instead of being raised to prominence, he didn't get out of the pit. Rather, he was nailed to the cross, and through that, all of Israel, and by his death and resurrection, all of Israel, and indeed the whole world, his enemies are saved. And so this is the yeah. thread that you can draw out as you drive to the gospel. 
Yeah, it's you know so many people, uh, at least, and maybe you don't have this uh, at your church, Jake, because your people are farther along in their sanctification. Mm-hmm. But I have a lot of people that feel like God doesn't want to get His hands dirty with them. Mm. That they have sinned too much. That God kind of can't can't work with them, can't do anything with them, is disappointed with them. But I think, I mean. What we see over and over through Scripture is a God who wants to get his hands dirty. That's where he works. I mean, he says, Joseph says in this passage, in verse 8, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Meaning, when you were acting like a bunch of jack wagons, to quote Sarah Condon, when you were jealous, sinful, terrible, angry people, only out for yourselves, and you threw me into a pit, but then that didn't seem bad enough, so you sold me into slavery... And then lied to dad about it and uh, and kind of covered up your crimes by making my coat look like I'd been attacked by a wild animal. When you did all that stuff and kept that lie in your family for years, a lot of families have a lot of lies for a lot of years. Mm-hmm. Um, God somehow, mysteriously, was working in that. You didn't send me here but God. And now the result is my of my being here and all the travail and suffering I've been through is that I can, I'm in a position where there's now food for you and for your family. The other thing that the brothers have done, which you're not supposed to do if you're a good follower of Yahweh, is to go to Egypt for help. Yeah, because that's right. Egypt, Egypt is the worst. Egypt is the nation that enslaved, uh, and we'll come to see that because they will, they will enslave, but they've, they've always been, you know, they, they don't worship the right God. They're, you know, another idolatrous, pagan, sinful place. And yet, um, that's exactly where Joseph's brothers go. So even in Egypt, the sinful place, God is at work. And um, so, and this this is where we see, because God is willing to get his hands dirty, because God is willing to love his enemies, i.e. us, Joseph's brothers, Egyptians, I'm speaking metaphorically, not about real Egyptians, y'all are great people, but um, because God is willing to do that, that's the kind of God he is. Um, he can love us, he can save us, and that's what we're going to ultimately see when we get to the, the gospel reading for today, but we'll come back to that in a second. Um, yeah. But it's this idea of loving enemies, this crazy flip-flop love of God. Yeah, and I mean, and in a pastoral sense, you know, uh, when you're working with people and talking with people, you know, this is, um, you may not be able to, like, articulate what God is doing in the midst of trouble and in the midst of hardship, uh, but yeah. uh, you, because of who Joseph points to, Jesus on the cross, you can be darn well sure he's at work um, and uh, has not abandoned you, has not forgotten you, and has most certainly not left you. Uh, but rather, yeah. he is um, he's doing something amazing. He is um, working with the perishable to ultimately make it imperishable. And this segues, and which is my spiritual gift, into 1 Corinthians 15, verses 35 through 38 and 42 through 50. Yeah. Uh, And so this is where, again, we are in the season of Epiphany, as we said last week, uh, the idea, we, we're getting a lot of revelations, epiphanies about what people are like and what God is like, what Jesus is like. Again, this is the whole season after Christmas. So this Savior who has come, what is he like? And we're, we've been spending a lot of time with St. Paul talking about the resurrection, why that matters. That seems to be the, the chief thing that Paul wants us to know and that on which uh, our faith is based. And so he's dealing with these objections from the Corinthians who were a hot mess. Uh, we haven't done a lot of talking about what was going on in the Corinthian church uh, and with those folks, but uh, but if you read the beginning of 1 Corinthians, you'll see that there was all kinds of uh, uh, just Geraldo Rivera daytime talk show uh, 
<clears throat> issues going yeah. on. And so, and clearly there's also intellectual issues. People are questioning the resurrection. Did it really happen? And so that's what he's picking up on here. Let me explain to you how the resurrection makes sense. You know, how how can the dead be raised? What mm-hmm. kind of body would they come in? Is it like zombies? Is this thriller where the, <laughs> uh, you know, Michael Jackson turns into a werewolf and people come out of their graves? Is that what we're talking about? He says, no, look, you see this in normal everyday life. You put a seed in the ground and it dies, but it comes up differently. And that's a that's an analogy from nature about what resurrection looks like for us. So what mm-hmm. our perishable perishable bodies are sown were buried and then what is raised is imperishable yeah because there were all of these um one of the issues in the corinthian church was is that like you're a super christian now like you know you can live your best life now you have power now it was um yeah very similar to kind of like you know kind of charis- a lot of charismatic uh teaching today you know uh you have the power now and people were like so where is this stuff you know what i mean how come it's not happening um in paul's day they were called super apostles uh, they would have been more of prosperity preachers now and um and uh, Paul is like, whoa, 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 hold your horses. You know, um, there's a time and a season for everything. And I love how he opens it up here. He's articulating um, how it works in the natural order. And so he's actually making, once you like, like you said earlier, Aaron, the God who gets his hands dirty. He's bringing this thing and he's not making it so uh, spiritual that it's no earthly good. He's actually making it incredibly earthy by using this idea of a planting of a seed. And so when he says, mm. so it is with the resurrection of the dead, you know what I mean? Um, you're not going to see the amazing until that which has been raised is imperishable. You know, it's sown in dishonor, but raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, but it will be raised in power. Um, it's sown uh, a physical body, and it's raised in a spiritual body. Uh, so this idea, but and when it says spiritual body, get ghosts out of your mind, like we talked about last week. Right. You know, we're not talking about orbs. We're not talking about any of that. We are talking about a physical, physical resurrection. Uh, but as C.S. Lewis said, this resurrection will make you look so different that you might be prone to worship it and worship yourself if, if you appear to yourself um, resurrected. And so, but he's, right. he's making this point of the same thing, just as the natural order works this way, so it is with the Christian life. And uh, he moves on to talk about this with Adam and using the comparison of the two Adams. And this is very important when you're doing like um, Bible study and stuff like that, is looking at, looking at the Bible through the lens of the first Adam and the second Adam. But the first Adam was a living being, but the second Adam, Jesus, is a life-giving spirit. Uh, one, like this isn't about Gnosticism. What this is is that uh, Adam was fleshly and lived in the flesh, and uh, but the first is uh, spiritual. He came from above. He condescended himself, as it says in Philippians, and took on flesh. But the first man was dust just like us. That's part of the curse that we inherit. Jesus didn't inherit that curse, but rather broke it. Uh, through his resurrection. And so uh, this is how, why in many ways we look still like Adam in this age, Um, but we will be raised again. We will be raised again. We have Christ, um, Jesus's spirit within us, which will help resurrect us. So this is a very um, powerful, powerful epiphany passage in that it relates to who we are, but it really needs to be unpacked. Yeah, and I think um, the other thing that I would say here is Paul gives us uh, a description of what the Christian life is like. A lot of people are going to want to see it as what what you and I sometimes call, borrowing from 
uh, Luther and others, the theology of glory, um, mm -hmm. that the religious life is a ladder that we climb. You'll have people that say we want to grow spiritually. That's glory language. We want to we want to become better. We, as you said, become super apostles. Um, get my life in order. Know the Bible. Just kind of be a just a, a spiritual giant. And um, but what Paul says is that you actually have to die. The spiritual path is is as Paul Zoll used to say, downwardly mobile. It's a downward mm. trajectory. You got to be so, you, you don't just get glory. You have to be sown in dishonor before you're raised to glory. You have to, you have to die. And that looks different for lots of people. It's a coming to the end of yourself. It could be, it could be your divorce. It could be the failure of your career. It could be you losing everything. It could be the bankruptcy. It could be just an ongoing slow burn kind of painful situation. Something in you is bringing you to the end of yourself, and you are then raised from that. But you got to die uh, <laughs> to live. Um, yeah, and, and this is what God does in us. That's right, and uh, like, and and you know, it's it's very powerful because this analogy. Um, you know, I love how Ferde puts this in, in uh, his, I think it's Theology for Proclamation. He talks about this, uh, or justification a matter of death and life. And he talks about how the world operates via action consequence. You know, you do this and you'll like receive punishment. You do this, you'll receive reward. Um, but what Paul is talking about here is almost a different paradigm. Um, he is talking about in terms of death and resurrection. And uh, in your life, actually, the big death at the end as a Christian, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, the big death at the end is actually really simple. It's these little deaths that you have to face all the time, which can be killer, but that you can trust that with God on your side, he'll raise you from the dead of it. Luther once preaching at the, the funeral of uh, uh, Frederick the Elector, the Elector who protected him, he said this death was easy. Um, uh, it was the little deaths, the loss of his status, the rejection of the church, the rejection of his family. These were all the hard, hard deaths that he had to face. And so through that, I mean, the perishable is constantly being killed by God. Make no doubt about it. But trust me, through the, and that's what Joseph was learning as well along his way. The perishable, the little things, those were being killed to bring him to a point where he could forgive his brothers and actually save his people. And that may not happen with you, but, uh, um, you know, you'll save an entire nation. But a God is working out something in your life that is imperishable and uh, will culminate in the resurrection of the dead. Yeah, and, you know, one of my uh, online Episcopal priest friends, Paul Castelli, asked uh, me if we could do show notes. And I don't know, Jake, knowing you and I and um, just our very busy TV speaking schedule, whether we'd be able to have time to do that. But uh, um, I will say, just you mentioned Ferde, and if we were to do show notes, we would mention that that's Gerhard Ferde, F-O-R-D-E, who's a uh, now deceased, may he rest in peace, Lutheran uh, preacher and scholar. And you mentioned Gnosticism also, which was that um, uh, some of the, uh, in seminary, if you went to seminary, listeners, you probably talked about that a lot. If you're a layperson listening uh, and you're not sure what Gnosticism is, it's sort of a, a catch-all term for Greek systems of thought in the first century when these texts were being written that some Christians got into, which sort of, or the idea that there's secret knowledge, secret clubs, uh, uh, a deeper truth that you can get that sort of everything is spiritual um, 
And so uh, that would be the risk of reading this passage about, you know, uh, this, the last Adam, Jesus Christ, being a life-given spirit. And if you hear that in a Gnostic way, you might think that, you know, the human body is meaningless and spirit is all that matters, and uh, which is not what Paul is saying. So mm. uh, if you have more questions about that, email Jake. You would love to respond to those. <laughs> I've got all the time in the world. I only That's really right. work on Sundays, so maybe I can prepare some show notes. Yeah, so. Get, only play nine holes this week, Jake, and answer some emails. Uh, so the, and just to finally, the last thing I think that is important to point out, kingdom of God at the end of this passage in, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, which flies in the face of a lot of the ways people talk about the kingdom of God these days, that the kingdom of God is something we bring. If you were to Google kingdom of God mission statement, you'll probably turn up about 75 churches that talk about here we are, church of the so-and-so, to bring about the kingdom of God. And Paul here says, you can't do it. Mm. It's 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 God's work to bring about the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus does tell us the king of God, kingdom of God is here because he, Christ, the king of kings, is here. But it's his work to bring it about. Um, and yeah. uh, and I think it's just because imp- if you tell your people that they have to bring it about, again, as we said last week, low anthropology, the heart is deceitful above all things. The kingdom of God is not brought about by you, or at least not the way you think it will. It's God's flip-flop world. He brings mm-hmm. it about, as he did with Joseph in... Um, getting Joseph abducted, sold, uh, betrayed, um, imprisoned. Uh, that's how uh, the kingdom of God was brought mm-hmm. out there. That's right. And here, for Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God came about through his death, um, ultimately to bring his resurrection. Same with us. What is sown in dishonor is raised in glory. Uh, you got to die to live. Yeah, and Paul would say that the kingdom of God is brought about through uh, uh, the preached word. And um, yeah. And the administration of the sacraments, and um, and uh, you know, and so this as ambassadors heralding it out that the war is already over. Um, but mm. this all comes about um, in counterintuitive ways. And you mentioned the flip-flop sense of the gospel uh, that comes about. Uh, so um, I have a colleague, Nancy Hanna, who um, shares a story about how she was preaching up in the Bronx and was just kind of articulating this: God working through our brokenness, God um, killing us and bringing us to life. Um, and um, and as opposed to through victory and through our strength and through our power. And she said as she was finishing up her uh, talk, her Bible study, some, she said, are there any questions? And this lady raised her hand and just said, you know, that's just flip-flop sense, the flip-flop <laughs> sense of the gospel. And, uh, and that is true. It is flip-flop sense. That's right. And so this means for the people in your congregation that are sinners— who think that God can't do anything with them or that God is deeply disappointed with them. This flip-flop gospel means that, and it sounds almost blasphemous to say, but that in that sin, God can work even there. Which, that's in the Psalms where it says, you know, if I make, if I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I descend to the depths, if I go down to Sheol, <laughs> there yeah, you are. That's um, right. There's not a place where God can't work. As we said before, God wants to God is the kind of God that gets his hands dirty mm. uh, with Joseph's brothers and Joseph's misfortune, um, with sinners like St. Paul. We said um, in the readings that we just recently had, Isaiah knew he was a man of unclean lips. Paul knew that he was the least of the apostles. Peter knew that he was a sinful man. So uh, God always gets his hands dirty with us. He's willing to work with sinners. And that place where you are a sinner is where you realize your need for God's grace, and his work is happening even even there. 
And we see the flip-flop sense played out descriptively in our gospel reading today. Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 38. Yeah, he, he says, uh, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. So here Jesus is commanding what we saw Joseph do uh, thousands of years before, where he loved his enemies, loved his brothers, forgave them, and uh, where he blessed those who cursed him. He, he prayed for those who abused him. And so we get this famous turn the other cheek passage. That's where this comes from. Go the second mile. Uh, there's people that are going to... Uh, um, uh, talk about how this fits in with the Roman context of people who were under uh, occupation or whatever about Roman soldiers who would hit you. And I, you can spend a lot of time on that. I think the main idea here is forgive enemies who are in, in power over you. Um, and, and Jesus points out that it's easy to love people that love you. I love to love you, baby. Um, but uh, even sinners do that. And the hard thing is to love others. The hard thing is to not tweet the horrible thing about the person whose political views you disagree with. Mm. That's the hard thing. And this is a place where so many Christians I know fall off the righteousness train and where they realize, hopefully, that they need a savior mm. because there's so much righteous indignation out there on both sides, on all sides, where we feel like we can love people who are like us, but if you disagree with me, like I need to hate you, publicly shame you, uh, and just feel really good about myself because I'm better than you. But uh, Jesus here says, love your enemies. Love your enemies. Mm. Be like what Joseph did. Love your enemies. Do what Jesus does. Loves us, his enemies. Um, this is how God works. But it is so, so hard. Yeah, this is, uh, this is absolutely right. But, and this cannot ever come about by your own strength. Uh, this really only comes about when the... Uh, the imperishable has been revealed because the perishable has been sown. Uh, to really right. love your enemy uh, means you have to die to your own self. You have to die to your own ego. You have to die to your own um, demand to be right, which means that you come to the realization that you are only justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, because that is where you realize that while you were yet still God's enemy, Christ died for you. And this passage really can only be put into perspective with the cross and where Jesus is headed. Yeah, it's, you know, this line here, it just, this passage, I think, will function in what we call the second use of the law, mm. which is when you, if you preach it, even if you think you're preaching it to tell people how to live a good life, because if you could do this, you would live a good life. The effect it will have will make people feel failures. I mean, that they're terrible, because who can do this? This amazing, crushing verse, end of 30, verse 35, he says, God is kind. He says, you will be children of the Most High, for he is like, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked, <laughs> which is decidedly not how you, Jake, are when you're driving. Not at I all. Mean, I mean, this is uh, the... <laughs> the when, when somebody cuts you off, you make good use of uh, sign language, you know? I give, I and, give and, birds. And, you know, when somebody, if people, if I do something nice for someone and they don't say thank you, oh, I'm not kind to the ungrateful. Mm. I'm pissed at the ungrateful. Mm. Uh, it, Jesus says, lend, expecting nothing in return. No, I mean, that's why I, when, I, when I lend somebody a book, I write down who it was and what I lent them so I can collect later. But this is not how God works. And this is why God is, I mean, he's a terrible God in a sense. I mean, shouldn't God be the one who who is fair, and this is not fair. Yeah, but. well, and as the Fitzsimmons Allison once said, you know, somebody was like, Fitz, it ain't fair. And Fitz said, son, 
the last thing you want is fairness. What you need now is mercy. And yep. um, and that is that is true, and that's what we find in Jesus. It's just funny, this just came up recently. Um, so uh, we had been given a gift in the parish for a particular event. And um, anyway, um, uh, throughout the year, we hadn't used all of the money, but we wanted, to, we wanted to use what was left for one big blowout kind of jazz concert. But because it didn't fit, like, the qualifications, the giver of the gift demanded all of the money back. Uh, or demanded wow. what was left of the money back. And so it shortened the kind of the program at the end of the year, which really I was enraged by. And then like within hours, they were calling asking if they could use um, if they could use music stands uh, for their program, to which my first response was F you and the horse you rode in on. Like, no way, <laughs> you know, and um, um and so, um, yeah, I wasn't going to give them the music stands at all. Um, but praise God for my music director, Camel Boutros, who is much more kind and gracious than I am and is a real Christian. Um, he worked it out. So, But uh, this, when you're brought up with this, really loving the person who's offended you um, and has affected you, um, this, is, this is hard. And it does, it, like you said, it flings you to the mercy of Jesus. Right, uh, because we so often work in a quid pro quo world. Of we, I'll forgive you if you say sorry and really mean it. Mm. Uh, I will let you off the hook uh, if you grovel. Um, that sort of thing. Um, and what uh, this turns us all into ultimately a, is victims. This turns us all yeah. into victims, and we're looking for scapegoats. Um, and this is what you see unfolding on college campuses across the country. This is what you see unfolding in our politics across the country. Um, where there is no grace, where there is no real mercy or forgiveness, all that is left is power. And humans wielding power will always crush and destroy their enemies. But grace, yeah. mercy, and forgiveness um, raises up the enemy, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, turns enemies into brothers and sisters, and uh, that will preach. That's yeah, that's so true. So the the second season of the marvelous Mrs. Maisel, uh, which is on Amazon Prime right now, there's a a, a marriage that's sort of uh, on the rocks and. What's going on is neither person can really see the other, neither person can hear the other, neither person can forgive the other for simply being who they are. And I remember what uh, Paul Zoll said uh, when we were in seminary, Jake. He said, if you're in a marriage, uh, husbands, you have to forgive your wives for being women. Women, you have to forgive your husbands for being men. Which what he meant was uh, you have to forgive each other at the very level of your being. You have to forgive them for, you could say, just for being human, uh, not just the individual ways they've offended you. You have to forgive them totally and completely just at the core level of who they are. Um, the actions flow out of that, but something at the core of them needs gr compassion and grace. And that's the only thing that um, ever heals or brings reconciliation or brings healing and and love. Um, and, and if you... Uh, but... It's easier said than done. And that's why this passage, I think, in, in Luke 6 is, yes, it is a recipe for a great life if you can do it, but nobody can. And only, yeah. and only one person has. And so the main thing, uh, preachers, is to tell people, sure, go ahead and try it. But this, is, this passage is mostly Jesus describing the way God loves and the way he loves us on the cross, which is where you want to take your people uh, in this passage.
Amen. Well, that's a great place to stop. Uh, We'll talk to everybody next week. Have a nice life. Enjoy your beer. Thanks for listening to Same Old Song, and we hope you found some nuggets that will be helpful either in your preaching or just in your life. If you like what you heard, we would love it if you could leave a rating or review on iTunes. Dave's all will be sad if you don't. We'd like to thank the Narrativo Group for audio production. Keep that Bible by your bedside, ready to rock and roll.